November 14th, 2018. The Empire's centrists strike back. Liberals and centrists back mouthpiece of white nationalist bullshit Tucker Carlson after anti-fascist protests outside his home. Centrists also hold pro-law demonstrations after Trump fires Attorney General Jeff Sessions. And actions on Kristallnacht show the need to once again organize to defeat fascism. Welcome to The Hot Wire. A weekly anarchist news show brought to you by The Ex-Worker. With me, The Riot Dog. And with me, The Rebel Girl. You can find a full transcript of this episode with show notes and useful links at crimethink.com, where we also have a 29 and a half minute version of this episode for standard radio broadcasts and no cussing. And now, the news. The most destructive and most deadly so-called wildfires to hit California are still burning across the state. I say so-called because they are more the product of climate change and capitalist development than they are the product of any wild, uncontrolled natural processes. 42 people have died so far. Another autumn, another season of hurricanes and forest fires, and another reminder that many of the firefighters out battling these deadly fires are prisoners. Once they're released, they won't qualify for a firefighting job on the outside because of their record. Welcome to the future. Mass incarceration as a surplus labor pool to protect the in-group of citizens from the catastrophic effects of climate change. After the elections last week, anarchists covered the Board of Elections building in Brooklyn, New York with red paint. They also published a communique reading, This election cycle was particularly disgusting, using migrants and black victims of police violence as political capital. The entire spectacle of this electoral charade rests on the graveyards of millions of murdered souls. The colonial capitalist enterprise known as the United States only came into existence through ruthless genocide and slavery. Every political platform is situated in this reality, standing on the graves of millions of slaughtered indigenous people, black people, the poor and economically disenfranchised, women and queer people killed and marginalized in order to uphold patriarchy, and the millions who have died through imperialist war. On this election day, as this country teeters on the brink of civil war, we chose to take an action against the democratic system. In the early morning hours, we targeted the Brooklyn Board of Elections office, splattering its windows with symbolic blood. Our only regret is that we couldn't do more. A tree sitter in the Hellbender Autonomous Zone, where tree sits are blocking Mountain Valley Pipeline construction in Western Virginia, also drew a contrast between the anarchist virtue of direct action versus the disempowering strategy of electoralism. Quote, For the sake of your own sanity, you should not operate under the misconception that these elections have anything whatsoever to do with the fight against fossil fuel infrastructure. You can't have a blue wave without clean water. And a red wave is actually a toxic algae bloom that is a symptom of climate change. I didn't come down from my tree to vote. Come to my tree sit and support action against the pipelines. Take your money out of Bank of America, PNC, Wells Fargo, SunTrust, BB&T, U.S. Bank, or the dozens of others funding the fracking pipelines. Organize an action in your community and take the time to talk to your neighbors about stopping these destructive projects. The mainstream culture would have you believe that all you can do is vote and file complaints with the Department of Environmental Quality and politicians. This is not the case. You can get in the way. 
At Evergreen College in Olympia, Washington, the IWW, South Sound General Education Union, held a rally with over 100 people in attendance against the hiring of a new cop. Instead, pushing for that money to go to hiring two full-time teaching positions. On November 4th, nocturnal rebels sabotaged a prison construction site in Paulding County, Georgia, disabling several construction vehicles there. In Medford, Oregon, protesters disrupted a Chamber of Commerce meeting to demand an end to the LNG fracked gas pipeline project. In the UK, the Animal Liberation Front liberated 30 turkeys and sabotaged a farm vehicle in memory of the late animal liberation prisoner, Barry Horn. In Athens, Greece, anarchists attacked a French diplomatic institution for the French state's prosecution of seven migrant solidarity activists, utilizing an organized crime law against them, a case we explained in more depth last episode. The anarchists used paint and rocks to leave their mark, with one big slogan reading, Burn all borders, f*** the state, anarchy. In Montreal, Quebec, a group of reportedly 70 people ran riot throughout a university residence. We think that's like a dorm building. They smashed surveillance cameras and wrote graffiti on the walls reading, Black block and roll, make riots not strikes, neither homeland, nor state, nor Quebec, nor Canada, lower the cost of my student housing, and one that said Moscow Death Brigade Brother and Sisterhood. I'm not really sure what that last one was about. Oh, you don't know, dog? We're back on the track to attack me, brother, and save the hood. Ski mask and track suit, you know with the angry youth. We're back on the track to attack me, brother, and save the hood, 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 brother, and save the hood. Speak of the walls, give me gas, take it, I got the same balls in the same rock. Friday evening was the 80th anniversary of Kristallnacht, the massive 1938 pogrom across Germany and Austria in which normal, patriotic German citizens killed nearly 100 Jews, destroyed hundreds of synagogues, and defaced thousands of Jewish businesses. 80 years on, the Kristallnacht anniversary weekend showed that across Europe and North America, Nazi ideas are alive and well, and the need to resist them is growing. In Warsaw, the centenary celebration of Poland's independence was attended by thousands of far-right nationalists and neo-Nazis. In the past few years, Poland's Independence Day has become a gathering for neo-fascists from all over Europe. Richard Spencer was set to attend last year. While 60,000 people attended last year, there were up to 200,000 people this weekend. Of course, not all the people who attended are out-and-out Nazis, but the far-right openly sports anti-Semitic and racist banners and chants in order to legitimize their ideas and recruit at this event. Three people attempted to block the fascist march and unfurl a banner reading, Women Against Fascism, but fascist marchers tore the banner from their hands and knocked them to the ground. In Prague, hundreds of neo-Nazis marked the anniversary of Kristallnacht with a rally where they chanted fascist slogans while police and tourists simply looked on. In Nijmegen, in the Netherlands, neo-Nazis from the Racial Volunteer Force threatened to attack the De Hotbroek Social Center on Saturday for their anti-fascist affiliations. 250 anti-racists and anti-fascists showed up, both to protest the Nazis and to remember the victims of Kristallnacht. The Nazis decided not to show. 
In Austin, Texas, the windows of the anarchist bookstore Monkey Wrench Books were broken out. While it doesn't seem that any group is claiming the vandalism, we're sure that the significance of breaking out the windows of an anarchist space on the night of Kristallnacht was not lost on the vandals. But the anniversary was also memorialized this weekend by Jews and anti-fascists, even as they faced far-right and anti-Semitic harassment. In New York City, a march organized for the hashtag Outlive Them Days of Action against fascism and anti-Semitism was followed and harassed by three anti-communists and Trump supporters who even interrupted the Jewish Havdalah service held at the Warsaw Ghetto Memorial. Naturally, dozens of cops protected the trolls, and the only people arrested were Jews and anti-fascists in the march. Cops and Klan, yo. A similar scene played out in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where a man shouting anti-Semitic abuse also interrupted a hashtag Outlive Them vigil. He shouted over prayers, put his camera up in people's faces, and eventually charged into the middle of the prayer circle. The anti-fascists and Jews present were incredibly patient while enduring the harassment. But when the man charged into the group, police stepped in and, surprise, surprise, didn't arrest him, but arrested one of the Jewish people there for assault. There were also rallies against fascism and anti-Semitism in Chicago, Melbourne, Australia, and in Berlin, where a thousand people demonstrated against the far right. In Minneapolis, anti-fascists targeted the businesses and home of a well-known Nazi sympathizer, Julius de Roma, with rotten eggs. De Roma supported David Duke's campaign run in 2016 and has contributed funds to Patrick Little, a white nationalist who was chat buddies with the man who carried out the massacre of 11 people at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. And while for months Democrats have tried to win votes by capitalizing on decent people's very reasonable fear of rising fascism and racism, this week, just days after winning the House, the left and center of the political establishment have shown the alacrity with which they will sell out anti-fascists who don't go through the state's channels. On Wednesday evening, November 7th, just under 20 anti-fascists protested outside the Washington, D.C. home of Tucker Carlson, Fox's leading pundit in amplifying contemporary white nationalist talking points. The demonstration basically consisted of someone knocking on the door, then going back on the sidewalk to chant with the group for a few minutes, and as the group slowly moseyed away, someone spray-painted a circle A in the driveway. Bow wow! Slow down there, dog. Well, it's tempting to get excited about the undeniably Bart Simpson-style tagging, Tucker Carlson and prominent right-wingers and Democrats reacted as if Al-Qaeda had just called in an airstrike on his family's home. In classic right-wing disingenuous fashion, Carlson, who wasn't even there, claimed that the protesters had blocked off his street. Okay, false. They were on the sidewalk. So that one of them could slam their body against the door, leaving it damaged and cracked. So false. I've seen pictures and the door's immaculate. Not even the police report states any damage to the house. And that the group threatened his family with pipe bombs. God, this liar! Okay, so a video of the demo shows that there's a protester that cites the pipe bomb sent by Cesar Sayuk, the Trump fanatic, as one of the acts of violence that Tucker Carlson inspires with his falsehood-filled anti-leftist panic. Liar, liar, liar! Nothing of your property is even on fire! 
What's even more shameful is how many supposedly liberal politicians and news outlets took the bait. The Washington Post kept referring to, quote, deleted social media posts by Smash Racism DC, making it sound like they were nefariously trying to cover up videos they had tweeted of the protests. But Smash Racism DC hadn't deleted their posts. Twitter deleted their account. The Washington Post story, of course, doesn't mention that. And none other than Stephen Colbert tweeted that, well, quote, fighting Tucker Carlson's ideas is an American right. Targeting his home and terrorizing his family is an act of monstrous cowardice. Don't do this, but also take no pleasure in it happening. Feeding monsters just makes more monsters. Oh, yeah. Vom. I did see that. I didn't see it because I follow Stephen Colbert, but I do like to monitor the far right, and none other than Richard Spencer retweeted it. God, do rich liberals understand that their civility fetish is playing right into the fascist hands? They might just not care. Someone like Stephen Colbert is probably more concerned about how the class privilege that he shares with Tucker Carlson is no longer a guarantee to keep him safe. Safe? Nothing even happened. Here, listen to how boring this protest sounded. exciting part of that clip is the goddamn tambourine. Okay, point taken. Nothing really happened, but I don't think we should emphasize our civility here. Like, that sounds like you're asking for liberals to forgive these protesters for their action, when really they're upholding the capitalist right of the rich to never face the people whose lives they destroy. Like, what about that Lucy Parsons quote? Let us devastate the avenues where the wealthy live as General Sheridan devastated the beautiful valley of the Shenandoah. <sighs> Fair enough. It's just disgusting the lengths liberals and centrists will go to to punish people for not directing any and all of their discontent through the political system of the state. For more on what really happened, we spoke with one of the anarchists who was actually there. So what happened and why are people like Stephen Colbert freaking out about this protest? Um, so what happened was about 20 people attended a small anti-fascist demo at Tucker Carlson's home. Motivation for the demo was to go politically on the offensive and make direct action against fascism more of a, a like viable offensive thing. You know, a visible opposition to fascistic politics that are more than just about reacting to fascist mobilizing. Um, the reason why people like Stephen Colbert are freaking out is because this is another step towards taking politics out of the hands of like people who officially do politics like Stephen Colbert uh, and into the hands of everyday people to do everyday things that are quite possible for everyone to do. And what kind of blowback has Smash Racism DC had to face? Uh, 
SRGC has got permanently banned from Twitter. One activist had a home visit by the Metropolitan Police Department. Um, that same activist has also been heavily docked. Um, you know, the sort of repression that we're getting is essentially, you know, we developed a platform that we were able to kind of like strategically go on the political offensive. And because we've had two instances, one where DC fascists heckled Ted Cruz out of a restaurant and heckled other people out of a restaurant, as well as now visiting the home of like a prominent national political figure, um, I think there just was kind of like a pushback against the political visibility of anti-fascism within Washington D.C. I mean, there is the other aspect where someone posted the paper that had not just Tucker Carlson's address, but a bunch of uh, national political figures like Ann Coulter, you know, and Sean Hannity's home addresses. This has been a little bit of a, a big scare for the far right. So they're trying to pressure Twitter into essentially deplatforming us. We no longer can promote essentially anti-fascist direct action on a national level. But beyond that, like, sure, there has been harassment, but, like, D.D. Americans and anti-fascists have been dealing with harassment since the 20. Neo-Nazis going, you're going to go to prison is nothing new. And we went down that avenue and we won. What is up with Fox News' reaction on Twitter to this? You know, Fox News being what Fox News is, them flipping out over, like, their inability to guarantee security or cause real problems for them. Now we're seeing Fox's leave Twitter.com as a weird protest against Twitter leaving up the docks for five plus hours of prominent right-wing figures. I mean, they deleted their Twitter account, but they have not tweeted in the three days. Most of the prominent figures uh, have not tweeted since the protest or a day after the protest. I mean, we have a deleted and banned Twitter account, but we can always create more Twitter accounts and develop more Twitter presences. That's not the hard part, right? It just takes a burger phone and an email and maybe using a VPN to master your IP address. But then leaving Twitter.com is literally them losing advertising revenue through losing traffic. It's them not promoting right-wing politics to a massive platform. That's a, that's a good thing. That's a, that, that is a political win. So why was the tactic of a home demonstration chosen? So we want to raise the social and political cost to promoting white nationalism and fascism. And the Daily Caller is Tucker Carlson's website, and it's been a key bridge from the fringe far right to the mainstream far right. Matter of fact, uh, Jason Kessler during the first horse march was actually still employed by the Daily Caller, and the Daily Caller actually promoted. United Right. Daily Caller uh, has taken you know conspiracy theories from Infowars or the Daily Stormer, and even docked their political opponents on the Daily Caller and brought them to the mainstream through Tucker Carlson's own TV show. So this is like a key intersection in the road between mainstream conservatism and white capitalism. So when we're thinking about the kind of like why do these people or why target them is their model relies on their politics to be so normalized that their life 
is normal and their politics are a part of everyday life. Once their promotion of, like, free elements springs on actual repercussions, then their model immediately falls apart. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Is there anything else? So, how we believe the information was found was you can look up through various databases the public information a lot of political donations. So if you know of a prominent right-wing figure in your community, they've probably donated to the local Republican Party, right? And you can look up their names through the Federal Election Commission. You can also go to your local K-Search. So search for your state plus K-Search and see if they have any tickets. Um, those are two ways of finding prominent local right-wing figures. But liberals swallowing hook, line, and sinker, Tucker Carlson's version of events last Wednesday was just the beginning of this week of extreme centrism. On Friday, PayPal decided to cancel the accounts of several anti-fascist action groups, including Atlanta Anti-Fascists, Antifa Sacramento, and the Anti-Fascist Network in the UK, along with the accounts of the Proud Boys and Gavin McInnes. Atlanta Anti-Fascists released a statement reading, Our group completely rejects the both-sides stance taken by PayPal. The Proud Boys engage in group beatdowns of those they perceive as leftists or other enemies. In collaboration with open white nationalists, they target marginalized communities. Anti-fascists monitor and oppose the far right. All our efforts are community self-defense. The donations we received helped offset the costs of our organization. But far worse than any monetary harm is the implicit message sent by PayPal that those engaging in and opposing far-right violence and intimidating are comparable. We note PayPal took this action soon after far-right gunmen murdered 15 people in three different incidents in Kentucky, Pennsylvania, and Florida. PayPal commemorating the 80th anniversary of Kristallnacht by targeting anti-fascists is particularly reprehensible. Atlanta anti-fascists still have other donation options, including Bitcoin, that you can check out on their website. And the day right after Tucker Carlson's victim mentality jujitsu, liberals around the country celebrated the newly elected Democrat majority in the House of Representatives by holding a no-one-is-above-the-law demonstration against Trump's firing of Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Uh, what? <laughs> I, I know, I know. But to expand on that reaction just a little, we're going to read at length from the Crime Think op-ed, Take Your Pick, Law or Freedom, How Nobody is Above the Law Abets the Rise of Tyranny. We saw you last night among thousands of other anti-Trump demonstrators around the U.S. Their signs proclaimed, No one is above the law. You were the one with the sign reading, I love laws. We need to talk. Really? This is what gets you into the streets? Trump's goons have been kidnapping your neighbors, preparing to block your access to abortion, openly promoting nationalism, calling the targets for lone wolf assassins who send mail bombs and shoot up synagogues, and your chief concern is whether what they're doing is legal? And if Trump and his cronies were to change the laws, what then? 
If you're trying to establish the foundation for a powerful social movement against Trump's government, no one is above the law is a self-defeating narrative. What happens when a legislature chosen by gerrymander passes new laws? What happens when the courts stacked with the judges Trump appointed rule in his favor? What will you do when the FBI cracks down on protests? If everything that put Trump in a position to implement his agenda were legal, would you be at peace with it then? When some nice, centrist politician takes office after him, but the police keep enforcing the policies he introduced and the judges he appointed keep judging, will you withdraw from the streets? Come to think of it, where were you under Obama when people were being imprisoned and deported by the million? Perhaps you have no problem with millions of people being imprisoned and deported as long as no one colludes with Russia or talks over a journalist. We saw other protesters with signs entreating us to save democracy. Didn't democracy inflict Trump on us in the first place? Isn't it democracy that just brought Bolsonaro to power in Brazil? A racist, sexist, and homophobic advocate of the Brazilian military dictatorship and extrajudicial killings? If democracy enables outright fascists to legitimize their authority rather than having to seize power by force, what's so great about it exactly? If no one is above the law, that means the law is above all of us. It means that the law, any law, whatever law happens to be on the books, is more valuable than our dearest desires, more righteous than our most honorable aspirations, more important than our most deep-seated sense of right and wrong. This way of thinking prizes group conformity over personal responsibility. It is the kiss of death for any movement that aims to bring about change. Social change has always involved illegal activity. From the American Revolution to John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry, from the sit-in movement to the uprising in Ferguson, if not for the courageous deeds of people who are willing to break the law, we'd still be living under the King of England. Many of us would still be enslaved. That is what makes your cheerleading for the FBI so chilling. You're familiar with Pro, presumably, and many of the other ways that the FBI has set out to crush movements for social change. Imagine that your best-case scenario plays out and the FBI helps to orchestrate Donald Trump's removal from power. What do you think that the FBI would do with all the legitimacy that would give them in the eyes of liberals and centrists? It would have carte blanche to intensify its attacks on poor people, people of color, and protesters destroying the next wave of social movements before they can get off the ground. Nothing could be more naive than to imagine that the FBI will focus on policing the ruling class. The more Trump's regime is described as exceptional, the easier it will be for the next administration to get away with the same activities. In the long run, the system is at its most dangerous when it does not outrage people. Firing Jeff Sessions helps Trump evade Mueller's investigation, yeah, but let's be clear, men like Sessions, Trump, and Mueller do the most harm in the course of carrying out their official duties in strict observation of the law. Mobilizing to support an FBI director in response to the firing of one of the most racist attorney generals in living memory? This is the same lesser of two evils argument some have made for voting, but taken to its logical extreme. This approach guarantees that we will be reduced to advocating for the second worst of all possible evils. What gives the law legitimacy in the first place? 
Partisans of democracy like to imagine that laws arise because of their general utility to the population as a whole. On the contrary, for most of the history of the state, laws were decreed by monarchs and dictatorships and only existed on account of their utility to rulers. If we no longer believe in the divine right of kings, that undermines any inherent claim that laws could have on our obedience. Rather than blindly complying, we have a responsibility to decide for ourselves how we should act. To cite Hannah Arendt, no one has the right to obey. The law masquerades as a sort of social contract existing for everyone's benefit. But if it's really in everyone's best interest, why is it so hard to get people to abide by it? The truth is, neither the powerful nor the oppressed have ever had good cause to obey laws. The former, because the same privileges that enable them to write the laws, release them from the necessity of observing them. The latter, because the laws were not established for their benefit in the first place. It shouldn't be surprising that a billionaire like Trump doesn't obey the laws. What's surprising is that you still think that the rest of us ought to. What's really the difference between the illegal activity of a Donald Trump and the illegal activity of someone who engages in civil disobedience? If no one is above the law, then they're both equally in the wrong. No, the real distinction between them is that one is acting for selfish gain, while the other is attempting to create a more egalitarian society. This is the important question, whether our actions serve to reproduce hierarchies or undermine them. We should focus on this question, not on whether any given action is legal. What we are seeing today is the fracturing of our society. The peace treaties that stabilized capitalism through the second half of the 20th century are collapsing, and members of the ruling class are adopting rival strategies to weather the crises ahead. On one side, nationalists like Trump are betting on chauvinism and brute force, preparing to make the best of it as society splinters into warring groups. On the other side, centrist technocrats want to present themselves as the only imaginable alternative, using the specter of Trump and his kind to justify their own quest for authority. When they get back into office, you can bet they won't turn down any additional power that Trump has vested in the state. Your advocacy for the rule of law is music to their ears. And, of course, whatever additional power and legitimacy they concentrate in the state will be passed on to the next Trump, the next Bolsonaro. Each side aims to instrumentalize the discourse of law and order in order to outflank the other in the battle for power. This isn't new. It's as old as the state itself. Right after the confirmation of Kavanaugh, you're a sucker to imagine that the law represents any sort of social consensus rather than the edicts of whoever happens to control the institutions. To fetishize obedience to the law is to accept that might makes right. To march under the banner, no one is above the law, is to spit in the faces of all those for whom the daily functioning of the law is an experience of oppression and injustice. It is to reject solidarity with the sectors of society that could give a social movement against Trump leverage in the streets. It is to assert the political center as a discrete entity that holds itself apart, that views both Trump and the social movements that oppose him as rivals to its own power. Finally, it is to legitimize the very instrument of oppression, the law, that Trump will eventually use to suppress your movement. Don't you remember, lock her up? You have to ask yourself some important questions now. Do you love laws or justice? Do you love rights or freedom? If it's laws you believe in, 
then you're on the right track. Just don't have any illusions about what it means to value the law above everything else. If it's justice you want, on the other hand, you need to be prepared to break the law. In that case, you need a totally different narrative to explain what you're doing. If it's rights you're after, you'll need a government to grant them, protect them, and, inevitably, take them away when it sees fit. Whenever you use the discourse of rights, you set the stage for this to occur. There are no rights without a sovereign to bestow them. On the other hand, if you love freedom, rather than vesting legitimacy in the government, you'd better make common cause with everyone else who has a stake in collectively defending themselves against invasive efforts to impose authority, whether from Trump or his Democratic rivals. From the anarchist perspective, all of us are above the law. Our lives are more precious than any legal document, any court decision, any duty decreed by the state. No social contract drawn up in the halls of power could provide a basis for mutually fulfilling egalitarian relations. We can only establish those on our own terms, working together outside of any framework of imposed responsibilities. The law is not our salvation. It is the first and greatest crime. In this week's Repression Roundup, Jace Burris, a prison rebel who helped organize a peaceful protest at Hyde Correctional in North Carolina during the national prison strike, has written Atlanta Anarchist Black Cross to let supporters know that he has been transferred to Birdie Correctional and placed in 180 days of isolation. During the strike, prisoners at Hyde put up simple self-made banners in the prison yard reading, In Solidarity, Better Food, and Better Wages while prison abolitionists simultaneously held a solidarity noise demo in sight and hearing distance from the yard. The actions taken against Jace are directly in retaliation to his organizing on the inside. But in his own words, I stand proudly still and hope that all men and women who deserve a second chance at life is given it. You may lock me away and throw away the key, but you cannot take away my voice. We have an address for Jace on our site. Another prison rebel in need of support is Devon Person. Devon was just about to reach his minimum custody requirements in January when he was charged with inciting a riot at the Craggy Correction Institution, also in North Carolina. He is asking that people please, please, please call and ask that his appeal against these false accusations is heard. You can call the director of the prison, Kenneth Lazeter, at 919-838-4000 or the North Carolina Department of Public Safety at 919-733-2126. The Vaughn slash Smyrna 17 trials continue in Wilmington, Delaware, with defendants Derek Forney, Dwayne Statz, and Jay Ayers currently on trial. Statz and Ayers are both defending themselves pro se. The state is expected to rest their case any day now. The state called a Sergeant Weaver to the stand. Sergeant Weaver sat at the state's table the entire time and did not cooperate during cross-examination. After Ayers cross-examined him, he made plain before the jury that Sergeant Weaver, and thusly his work on this case, should indeed be scrutinized by asking, Are you aware A.G. Downs asked you 20 questions and you had an answer for every one, but none for questions I asked you? You can read more of what's been happening in court at Vaughn17Support.org. Or better yet, you can show up and witness it yourself. Ongoing court support is needed and appreciated. Trial is taking place every day from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. in courtroom 8B at 500 North King Street, Wilmington, Delaware. 
Huelga Radio, an anarchist-affiliated pirate radio station that has been squatting Mexico City's airwaves for over 19 years, is under threat by both media conglomerates and the federal government. The Federal Institute of Telecommunication, or FIC, recently renewed contracts with two of the largest media conglomerates in Mexico, with contracts that are good for another 20 years. The FIC is equivalent to the FCC in the States, and since early October, the agency has been interfering with Quehuelga's broadcasts by playing bad music or even white noise over our compas broadcasts. Quehuelga is refusing to give up 102.9 and is urging folks to listen on their site, quehuelga.net, and to continue to try and pick up their signal if you're in Mexico City. Quehuelga, the Hotwire wants to be like you when we grow up. Three anarchists arrested after May Day celebrations in Yogyakarta, Indonesia, have finished trial and are being held in Sabangan prison awaiting sentencing on November 22nd. They each face a maximum of 10 months in prison. We'll keep you updated on their sentencing when we find out more. Anarchists in Russia are facing ongoing repression in the wake of the bombing carried out two weeks ago by young anarchist Mikhail Slobitsky. In the aftermath of the attack, Russian special services are targeting subscribers of the People's Self-Defense Group on the social media network Vukintakya, summoning 100 people in for questioning and vowing to investigate all 26,000 subscribers of the group. As a result of the repression, new cases are already being opened across Russia with Avicislav Lukachev, an anarchist from Kaliningrad, known for his animal rights and Antifa activities, facing seven years in prison. Avicislav is accused of publicly justifying terrorism for having republished Mikhail Zoblitsky's pre-death message, despite media across the country republishing the same exact message. Anarchists in Russia have had it increasingly rough for the last year and a half, when the Russian Federal Security Service, the FSB, initiated a wave of repression before the presidential elections, arresting and brutally torturing anarchists in order to force them to sign false statements admitting to participating in a supposed terrorist group invented by the Russian authorities. You can read more about the network case on Rupression.com. There is a call-out for solidarity actions with our comrades in Russia, to whom we extend solidarity and wish luck. We hope that you can stay safe and know that you will stay brave. And now for Prisoner Birthdays and next week's news. This weekend is Cameron Crowley's birthday. Cameron is accused of being the hacker vigilante who hacked into Minnesota state servers as a reprisal for the acquittal of police officer Geronimo Yanez, who murdered Philando Castile during a traffic stop in 2016. You can write Cameron a letter or send him a used book. We have his address and a guide to letter writing in our show notes. And we'll close out this episode with next week's news, our calendar of events that you can get plugged into in real life. Mutual Aid Disaster Relief continues their tour across the Midwest with their two-part workshop on community organizing, disaster relief, and resisting disaster capitalism. This week, you can catch them on November 14th and 15th in Kansas City, Missouri, November 17th and 18th in Columbia, Missouri, and the 19th and 20th at the Flyover Social Center in Carbondale, Illinois. 
On November 15th in London, England, there will be a queer dance party outside the Brazilian embassy against Brazilian president-elect Bolsonaro and to save the Amazon. It will last from 5.30 p.m. until 8.30. This weekend, November 17th and 18th, has anarchist book fairs in both Seattle, Washington and Boston, Massachusetts. More at seattleanarchistbookfair.net and bostonanarchistbookfair.org. Anarchists in Umeå, Sweden, are hosting their first ever book fair from November 29th to December 2nd. School of the Americas Watch is holding a border encuentro from November 16th to the 18th in Nogales, Arizona, and Mexico around the theme Dismantle Border Imperialism. On November 16th, that's Friday, in Portland, Oregon, there's a We Won't Be Erased demonstration against transphobia. Meet at 4.30 in the afternoon at City Hall and follow at Won't Be Erased PDX on Twitter for more. On November 17th, Proud Boys militias and a notorious neo-Nazi skinhead gang are all planning to attend a conservative We the People rally in Philadelphia. The rally is right next to the National Museum of American Jewish History. The pushback campaign and anti-fascists are calling for those opposed to Nazis and Proud Boys to gather at 10 a.m. at the Independence Hall Visitor Center. Anti-fascists in Portland, Oregon are also planning to oppose Proud Boys on November 17th. This time at a Patriot Prayer Rally that's a disingenuous attempt to cast men as victims of false accusations of sexual assault. Rose City Antifa are calling for those opposed to rally at 1 p.m. on Saturday at Perry Schrunk Plaza. On November 18th in Aachen, Germany, there is a demonstration against the political swing to the right and state repression. It's in solidarity with people charged for getting into a fight with some organized neo-Nazis. It's at 3 p.m. at Markt. There's a demonstration against singularity and surveillance in Athens, Greece on Monday, November 19th. Meet at Parco Eleutherius at 11.30 a.m. There is a call from, quote, social movements, political organizations, anti-extraction groups, and organizations of workers, women, feminists, LGBTQIA+, indigenous peoples, peasants, migrants, and students for a week of action against the G20 meeting in Buenos Aires, Argentina, from November 25th to December 1st. The 25th to the 27th will have popular education and workshops from different groups. The 28th and 29th will feature a People's Summit with Day 1 at the Faculty of Social Science of the University of Buenos Aires and Day 2 in Plaza de los Dos Congresos. November 30th is when the big street demonstration will take place. Anarchists in Argentina have really taken to the streets in the last year. Over the disappearance of anarchist comrade Santiago Maldonado, over the economic crisis, and against the new right-wing government under President Mauricio Macri. And with the fierce resistance to the G20 and capitalism in Germany last summer, we expect Buenos Aires to be a flashpoint of anti-authoritarian action. There is an international call from anarchists on four continents for a day of action against borders on December 10th. The idea is to kick off the 10th day of each month as an anti-border day of action. You can find a link to the full call in our show notes. The 2019 Certain Days Freedom for Political Prisoners calendar is now available and makes the perfect stocking stuffer. Wait, I thought we didn't promote things for capitalist holidays. Sorry, but I love this project. It raises money for political prisoners and other great causes. This year's theme is health slash care and features art and writing from Beck Young, Hikaru Akita, 
Alicia Walker, and Laura Whitehorn. You can order one or a hundred at certaindays.org. And lastly, the Christie Books Anarchist Film Archive of over 1,000 videos has just been relaunched. These include rare and sometimes just plain weird videos with anarchists throughout history and from across the globe. You can watch them for free at christiebooks.co.uk, and we highly recommend you do. And that's it for this Hotwire. As always, thanks to Underground Reverie for the music. And thanks to the Anarchist in D.C. for the interview. You can contact us at podcast at crimethink.com, where you can also find all the links, mailing addresses, and useful notes we customize for this episode. You can subscribe to The Hotwire on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The X Worker. You can listen to us through the Anarchist Podcast Network, Channel Zero. And believe it or not, every Hotwire is radio-ready, with a 29-and-a-half-minute version found in each episode's show notes. So feel free to put the Hotwire on your local airwaves. If you do, let us know so we can plug your station. Stay informed. Stay rebel. Plug into the Hotwire. <laughs>